Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Karingai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge Mana Whenua of Te Awakairangi Kitai, where I'm recording today. Hello! Hi! How are you? I am hanging in there. It has not been a very fun couple of weeks. No. How about for you? Has it been similarly crap? It has. It has indeed. Like, work has been very trying on all mm. levels. Um, yeah, which has left very little in the tank for other things. But here we yeah. are on our Saturday to talk about our favourite idiots. <laughs> yes. Having a reprieve. Thank goodness for this reprieve. And thank goodness we get to spend time together talking about our favourite idiots, for sure. Yeah, always a great time. Did anything spark joy for you this week? Yeah, so I went to the cinema on Tuesday, finally. After last week, I couldn't go because there was a work emergency. But thankfully, the cinema moved our tickets to this week. So we got to go. My friend Sophie and I left work early and we went to see Oppenheimer because we went to a four o'clock session uh, because it's three hours long. So we're like, (laughs) don't want to be out until midnight. So we shall leave work early to actually see it. Um, So that was nice. It was nice to go. I haven't... Yeah, actually, no, I did go to the cinema with a friend to see Barbie not that long ago, but it felt very long ago. So it was nice to go to the cinema. I love going to the movies anyway. So it's something that I want to do more of. And it was really nice. And then also I went to two boxing classes this week and I wasn't sore afterwards. So I was very happy about that because the last couple have been really tough and I was feeling that for days afterwards. So to be, to get through them this week and not be in pain, I was like, yes, good. Love it. Well done. And nice to do boxing. Somebody I know from Quilting Circles on Instagram, her daughter does kickboxing. And every time she puts a video up, I'm like, dang, this like 12 year old could kick my butt. It's amazing. (laughs) How about you? What sparked joy for you this week? Uh, Like you, I've had a really rough week with all of the life stuff, but a few good things have happened. So I've been taking myself out for lunch, which is great. Um, I usually just put off lunch like, oh, it's it's fine. I'll just I'll get something on the way to pick up. And then it's like 2.30 and it's pick up. And and I'm like, oh, I didn't eat. Oh, it's fine. And then I'll just wait till dinner. And I've actually been going like, no, it's one o'clock. I'm going to go out and get avocado toast at a cafe. Mm. Yes, I'm paying too much for it. Yes, I definitely had too big of a lunch on Thursday, but no regrets. I'm really enjoying just eating out. Nice. Yeah, look, if it's $12 avocado toast is uh, the way that I get lunch in my body, then I'm allowed to do that. My therapist has given me permission and that's yeah. that's what I'm allowed to do. Yeah. It's also just time <laughs> out just for you to like do something for yourself. So it's not just the sustenance. It's also the little reprieve you get in your day. That's just gin time. So yeah. Yeah. And um, when I'm home, I'm always thinking of the next thing to clean or do. So this is a good opportunity for me to just be like, I am at the shops. I cannot do anything productive. <laughs> I have to just eat and read. So that's been really good. Great. Oh, I love that. Well, this week we're reading chapter 38 of 46. Um, and even though it's my turn to tell the story, I have farmed it out to you. So <laughs> do you have a story through the theme of grief? Um, I do. It's actually perfect timing. Uh, because this week my very last grandparent, my grandmother, died. So I will, I'll talk a little bit about that. So this wasn't an unexpected death. My grandmother had been in a decline for a really long time, and I knew it was coming for sure for about a week. But in the week that I knew, it was like I had focused all of my energy on being there for other people. So mm. I went to a mutual friend's 
sister's funeral. I did a lot of kids stuff. Like it was back burner in my brain, but I wasn't really thinking about this impending event. But then when it did happen, it really took me by surprise. So she'd been slowly losing her memories in reverse. My dad recounted a conversation he'd had with her a while ago, and she just kept asking him, you know, do you have a family? Are you happy? He told her that he did and he was, but it was really hard for him. He didn't say that, but I could tell it was really hard for him. Um, She was still herself, he told me. He was trying to reassure us both, I think. Um, She was still cheerful. She just couldn't remember. So I knew that the part of her that knew me and remembered me had been gone for a while anyway. And when I got the news that it was it was close to the end. I really wanted to call her or send a message or just say, I love you and and thank you for loving me. But I decided not to because I thought maybe it would distress her or confuse her. And, you know, like, would it really be satisfying if that were Mm -hmm. the last interaction we had? What kind of thing was I really looking for? Closure is a myth. I know that. So I let go of that. And that was probably the hardest thing was to just not try to see her or speak to her and to let her slip away without intruding. But it felt like the loneliest decision in the world. But it really wasn't. So I have had the joy and the comfort of texting whenever our time zones allow with my cousin Sarah. Now she's like my other half. She's the best friend that I grew up with. And she's family. And she's just like the person, you know. We've Mm -hmm. always had a really similar shape of love for our gram. She was there for us both in a way that we really needed when we were teenagers, and she loved us unconditionally. She loved us as we were, as we are, and we had built our lives and families around that foundational, unconditional love, which is something that I hadn't really thought about, but it's definitely true. So we got to share memories and talk about what it means to lose this last grandparent, and mm. and then sharing that with her made it easier for me to get on with my day. It made it easier to stomach the gut punch. So now... In the grief of it, feeling the feelings, I get to think about how my grandmother cared for me and my cousin and my sisters, and I think that's the legacy she left behind. She's shown all of that love out toward us, and I got to keep it. I got to grow up with it. I got to take it utterly for granted. And now I am grown up, and I can shine that love outward toward others. Hmm. I just want to say grief feels awful, but it's good in a way because it tells us something important. It tells us that we cared enough to feel a loss we loved or we were loved and it hurts now but it won't always because no love is ever wasted and grief is just compost for love hmm yeah i love thinking about grief as you know it's not something you get over it's not something that lessens it's just we grow around it yeah you never really lose the grief but it transforms into something else and that's as you say something beautiful that happens But it is tough. And like everyone is on their own trajectory as well. I think it's so important. I've had a couple of conversations with people recently who feel like they aren't grieving in the right way or they're not getting over things fast enough. A friend of mine had a very tragic loss a couple of years ago and she still struggles with it today. And people would be like, why why aren't you over it? And she can't move on. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are all on our own timelines with grief, right? And sometimes it's regressive and you go back and you go forward and you just have to have patience with yourself, really. Absolutely. I, I have to give a small shout out. I know you don't like Fleabag, but I think that the episode where she's talking to her friend after her mother's funeral and she says, where will all that love that I had for her go? And her friend's like, that sounds lovely. I'll take it. Like that really changed something about the way I feel about grief. And it really helped to like crystallize this concept that like grief is just the love we no longer get or the love we can no longer give. 
And like, yeah, where will all that love go? Like, you don't stop loving that person. That person did stop loving you, but not because they wanted to. It's just because that's what happens with death. But then it, that love still lives on. I don't know. I just really love that whole show. <laughs> well, like Lucy's love lives on for Simon, right? Oh. Even beyond the grave. Oh. Or even Natasha's love for Baz, right? They both came yeah. back for their boys. And like, absolutely, I would do the same thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> Veil, be gone. I would 100% be in my kids' faces. Are you eating well? Did you brush your teeth? Are you being kind? <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Okay. Ugh. Anyway. Well, shall I do the chapter summaries then? Oh, yes, then? please. Yes, please. So Penny decides to trust that Shepard wasn't being a jerk when he lied about, you know, being engaged to a demon. Now that they have the translation, they decide to start working on getting out of the contract. And the first step, tracking down her dad and looping him in. Simon and Baz are taking things one step at a time, first by getting clothes for Baz, talking about all their tangly feelings and working out what to do about Smith Smith Richards, the new alleged chosen one. Simon and Baz take the time to meet up with him and then they go back to the flat and get lots of beautiful feelings from them to marinate. So many. It feels like this is a really short section. I think the chapters were really short here, but it was nice to have a bit of time to really focus in on the grief that especially Simon is feeling with trying to process everything that has happened over the last few years and his loss of magic and the way he feels about the mage yeah. and his relationship with Baz. <laughs> There's so much grief for him to process, like you said, like losing his mentor, losing his magic, losing this story he told about, he had about himself, mm. like this myth of being the greatest mage, right? This destiny, the loss of the destiny, but also his friendship with Penny, right? Because there's yeah. a, a fracture in that as well. And so they're both sort of grappling with that grief too. Yeah. Where they don't really know. I think Penny's reluctance to engage again is the protective measure. Like she doesn't want to feel this bad about it. So she's just letting it go. Like she thinks that this is like the soft breakup before the hard breakup and she doesn't want to get hurt again. But I really want her to just answer her phone. Oh my gosh. I think there's also some grief with Simon around how things played out with Baz as well, like the past relationship they had, because that moment where he talks about the violin, right, where he yeah. says to him, I didn't know if you still played, really just stood out to me how much he missed over the last year when he was like holding Baz at arm's length. Yeah. Like there's so much about him that he doesn't really know anymore. Yeah. That line, that really beautiful line, he says, all of this with Baz is petrifying. All of this without Baz is intolerable on page 261. That was just like, oh, yep. Yep, that's it. That's the whole feeling. That's the whole vibe. Like, is life worse without this person? Yes, then it's worth making it work. Like, what? where is the bigger grief? And the bigger grief would be without Baz. So I think he's making the right decision and for the right reason. But it's just really interesting that he couldn't articulate that until he'd actually thought he'd lost him. Yeah, and I think there's grief mixed up in that as well. Like, there's a kind of a grief hangover that they both experienced from that breakup. Because yeah. it wasn't very long, but it still had an impact, mm. right? And so, like... There's also this this that hangs over the relationship. Like Baz says, you know, he'll keep his bags at the front door just in case he throws them out. And yeah, there's this uncertainty that they still have around each other, and this like real carefulness that they're handling each other. But I think it really speaks to their expectations of each other because they're communicating mm -hmm. and they're setting new expectations of behavior for each other, mm -hmm. and also what their relationship is going to be, which is unpacking a lot of expectations of relationships as a whole. Like Simon is really trying to figure out what it means to be in a relationship right yeah for sure he keeps interrogating himself about it right he keeps saying like is this what people do when they're in love do they keep touching and talking and then what like he he just wants to know where it's going like he's looking at wh where's the template for all of these 
relationship expectations. And like, I'm sorry to say, Simon, but that there is no template. You just have to make it up as you go along because every relationship is unique and different. There's no timeline. Mm. Incidentally, this is why all of those books like The Rules and The Game are BS because no relationship is ever going to go to a prescribed plan. And if it does... I don't feel like it's a particularly genuine one, you know? Like, if you're having to go Yeah, it's not authentic. Yeah. It's people playing their parts, right? If it's following a script like that. Yes. Yeah. And I love... I really love the expectations they have of each other. Like, one, you know, Simon has expressed that he doesn't like being touched softly. And Baz sees his reaction and he corrects. Like, he corrects and he, like, gives him what he wants, which I love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also when, you know, Simon's like, you've got to stop questioning me. I'm holding on by a thread on page 303. And Baz is like, well, I don't want you holding on by a thread. And he's like, but isn't that what I need to do? The point is I'm holding on. I love that they're communicating these expectations. I love that bit about Baz being observant. And I'll say that he is also really observant about Simon's feelings toward the mage like he'll push him a little bit on it but he doesn't get hurtful and he gets really upset when Smith Richards goes on and on about it and on page 289 he goes I don't think the fact that everyone knows Simon was duped is much of a comfort to him especially when there's so much he doesn't know about himself where did Simon's ability come from how did the mage find him and what would have happened if the mage had been able to take Mm. Simon's power on that final fateful day like he has thought about all of these losses of Simon's a lot like he has actually put it into a lot put a lot of thought into how Simon feels and that's just really lovely and observant of him I think it's beautiful Mm. that he's really arced up whenever anyone gets outside of their stays strays outside of their lane I guess yeah and there is so much grief there for Simon as well right about so much he doesn't know about being an orphan and all these things and yeah, poor little Simon. It gets better, but it also gets worse. Um. Oh my God, speaking of Simon, I think Simon would absolutely lose his mind if anything ever happened to Baz, right? Like we kind of saw that at the end of Wayward yeah. Son where he practically comes back from the dead because he's like, no, I must protect Baz, right? Mm-hmm. So I love that he has that exchange with him about the numpties because that would have so, you know, when he's like, I would have slaughtered them. Yeah. He would just have lost his mind, basically, from grief. Yes, I love that he actually says it and... He just didn't know. Like, he was so obsessed with them, but he just didn't know. And I think this is one of the reasons I love this particular story. I love a good enemies to lovers. But I think that it really only works if... I I think I saw this somewhere on Tumblr, but someone was pointing out it only works if there's, like, equitable, respectful enmity, right? So they both fought all of the time, but they were both obsessed with each other. And so it actually really works that they then were able to flip that and just work on the attraction just as a bit of a tangent. But I, I agree. I think he would have been mm. mad with grief. I think he would have been devastated if something had actually happened to Baz. Like he was freaking out about it. He kept hassling the teachers. Oh, I just want yeah. Baz to not have been kidnapped and stuck in a coffin. Like poor Simon's paramours, they have a terrible track record for kidnappings. They're just that I love like Baz went through so much trauma in that experience and we just moved on. Like Baz is like, okay, that happened, we're just cracking on. It's like, no, I think you need some therapy here, my dude. I think you have uh <laughs> some <Yeah>. issues. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Doesn't yeah. he really freak out about the closed confined spaces in the second mm. book? Wasn't there a bit where he was like, This is freaking me out, I don't like it, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely something he didn't like. Horrible. Yeah. Um, do you think there's grief mixed up in Shepard's regret about Penny, like lying to her, but also like, yeah. you know, he likes her, but he knows that she, he's like, she doesn't feel that way about me. So I try not to look at her. You know, there's that expectation that he's trying to manage. Yeah. It's, from it's a bit seeing of seeing the way she behaves. Yeah. 
I just love how kind of clueless he is. He's like, obviously, she's not vibing. And she's totally vibing. But she's just naturally prickly. <laughs> so she doesn't have to be. Oh, she doesn't have to be like cheerful and receptive and flirty. Like the fact that she will not leave you alone is a good is like a green flag, my friend. Um, yeah, I think there's a bit of grief there. I also think that the expectation really is is big. He talks about how on page two sixty six, like it back in California, I'm probably never gonna see this girl again. I'm never gonna meet another girl like her. And the last thing I want her to know about me is that these tattoos are a messed up engagement ring. Like he's already so cognizant of the fact that. He doesn't want to screw it up in any way, which I think is really cute. Yeah. And I love that Penny is really, you know, she's setting clear expectations for herself. Like she's kind of setting mm. clear boundaries. And I love that for her. You know, she says to him, don't do it again. And on page 269, just assume mm. I want as much information as possible in every situation. That is such great um, expectation setting from her. Yeah. I'm so proud of her. <laughs> I am proud of her too. And I love that he's like, yep, I'm on board. Yes, I'm nodding too eagerly, but I want that too. Like, it's really cute that he's so amiable, I think is the term I'm going to go with. Very cute. Um, I want to talk about this expectation that Baz critiques Smith Richards on. So on page 289, Smith Richards <laughs> is like, perhaps I was meant to help people. And Baz is just like, for heaven's sake, imagine thinking that makes you special. It's something that's literally true of all of us. That cracked me up because that is absolutely 100% a fantastic insight and I'm going to incorporate that in all of my critiques from here on out because I really <laughs> hate those like chosen leader per people who do this nonsense like I'm just I'm just called to help like guess what everybody's capable of this you're not better or specialer <laughs> like everybody can do this mm. oh and I love that he is just annoyed about it I love Baz's internal monologue that whole time because he's so dismissive and he's like mm -hmm. so annoyed that Smith is stealing all of Simon's things. He's like, he's stolen your whole deal. Mm. I just, I, I love Baz's disdain. But I also think Smith Richards is preying on people's grief and it yeah. really reminded me of like those people who used to do, this was just a big thing in like the 90s about these like medium shows where they communicate with people's dead loved ones, yeah. right? And that is a real preying on grief as well because people want closure. They want that. They're so desperate for it, right? And then you have these charlatans who come out and like make money off people. And I feel like that's what Smith Richards is doing. He's preying on people's grief for not having magic and not belonging. And he's getting his little cult going. This is why I keep picturing Smith Richards as Simon Baker, the mentalist, because he's like <laughs> the magicalist. He does look like that. Right? Oh my gosh. The curly hair, yeah, the that's how blue eyes. Yes. Okay. Stan. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, Simon Baker Smith Smith Richards, yeah, is uh, he's a charlatan because he keeps talking about it in a way that's like, like he's really winsome. He wants this ideal of this magical world. Like he heard about the world of mages through stories. Page 294. In the stories, there are castles, there are feats of powers, dragons. In the world of mages, there's almost nothing. A school, a few clubs, dishwashing spells. I give them a lifetime's worth of power and they make chocolate bars. A, he knows exactly what he's doing. I give them a lifetime's worth of power. Mm. This is not somebody who genuinely thinks he's helping people. This is somebody who is genuinely a cult leader and knows he's a cult leader. And two, let them make chocolate bars. Like, you are selling them something that they cannot have. If they want to have a chocolate bar, that's fine. Yeah, you don't get to control what people choose to do with the power. Like, I think yeah. it's quite... It's horrible when he says, what's the point of being magical if you have to fill your days with mundaneity? Life is mundaneity, my dude. Like, we are always in the middle. Like, you can't go keeling up and down from excitement to excitement. He's trying to create an idealized world that doesn't exist. He's not trying to give people the power to live in the current world. He's trying to make a world that is magical, right? Yeah. 
But I don't, I do wonder whether he isn't the worst kind of charlatan because he believes his own hype. Like he believes this story yeah. because he's been manipulated as we'll later find out by his, whoever he is, uncle, Godfather, whatever. Yeah. yeah. But I think there's, he's that kind of arrogance where he's like truly buying, he's buying the con that he's selling, which is the most dangerous kind of cult leader, I think. Yeah. Um, also, I love that throwback when he says, you know, and all the old stories, because of course when we have Baz lamenting Simon, he says, no one told Simon Snow the old stories, right? Yeah. I love that kind of callback to that. And yeah, if you want power that much, you shouldn't have it, basically. 100%. This is not a guy who's taking seriously the submission to duty. No, and while we're on that section, I love that he has that moment where he's thinking about Simon, page 292, and he says he looks the part. Can he see how people look at him? Can he see how they see him? And no, he can't, Smith. That's the mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because he never felt like he lived up to his own expectations. And then... No, oh, bless. He didn't get to. Simon didn't get to live up to his own expectations. He fulfilled his own secret failure expectations. And now he has to deal with the grief of never getting the opportunity to be who he was prophesied. It just sucks, man. Yeah, it's really... Yeah, it's really the expectation of the world of mages. They build this big thing up and it never lives up to reality. That was the case for Simon. That's now the case for Smith Richards Mm. as well. Just opens these holes for these people to proliferate who take advantage of other people because you've set unrealistic expectations for your population. Yeah. Annoying. So annoying. Do not give the diet industry any more money, people. Please. No. For the love of God. You are fine the way you are, I promise. You know who I love? Demons. And their very clear expectation of the law. <laughs> I like this bit too. I like that they get this really specific insight from Penelope's dad, who I'm glad that somebody finally caught him and talked to him because he's been a bit of a loose unit the last mm-hmm. couple. He's been pretty hard to track down. Maybe not a loose unit, maybe just a an unfindable person. He's just been a bit tricky. But yeah, I love that he says, oh, it's not just a contract it's a hand fasting which is a beautiful old term and i feel like he and metali have definitely done a hand fasting <laughs> yeah they're bound together in three dimensions right <laughs> so cute um but i love that her dad's like oh yeah they love contracts because that's how they get you <laughs> i know so great but this is good i also love it the expectation he has of Penny and Simon that they're going to get into trouble. He's like, where's Simon? Is he already fighting the demon? <laughs> <laughs> mm, I do wonder gosh. if it's a bit rough on Penny that nobody is taking very seriously that Simon isn't with her. I feel like her parents should be like, okay, something's really wrong. Sit down and tell me exactly what's going on. Because like, no one has actually spoken to her and talked her through this. And like the people she would normally talk to are Baz and Simon. And she's like trying to ghost them. But she doesn't really have anybody else mm. who, like, knows the way that they are together as a unit of a friendship. Like, nobody else has seen that except for the people who watch them grow up together. So I'm a little bit annoyed mm. that she's kind of going through it and her dad's just like, doop do doop got to follow a cult leader. And her mom's like, doop do doop running the world of mages. Like, I get that they're busy, but, like, seriously, your kid is in distress. Just pay, like, 5% of attention. I think it would be hard with Penny, though, because she is so hyper-independent and she's not the kind of person to volunteer that kind of information. So it is probably very hard for you when your child has been like that for 18, 19 years to suddenly pivot and see, oh, no, she's in a a moment of vulnerability because they've never seen that from her. Hmm. I mean, and they've got another kid in the house who's basically, like, despondent and they're just like, we're not talking about it. Mm. Crazy time in the Buns household, that's for sure. 
If I were one of the younger kids, I would definitely also just play a lot of Mario Kart. That's for sure. They should hang out with the Grimpitches and just play Mario Kart together. Oh my gosh, why didn't Baz send up all of the like bored Bunce kids up to help his dad out? That would be genius. Why are we not fixing their lives for them? It should be a community, honestly, people. But that does remind me mm. of the classism aspect. Because I think Smith Richards sort of shows his hand a little bit here. He's very snobby and judgy of people. Yeah. Like, ugh, they making chocolate and blah, blah, blah. Yes. But I think it's so rich for Fiona to accuse <laughs> Baz of being classist when she is the most classist person around. But also, I agree with Baz. I agree with his opinion on vaping. Yeah. I once in my office was saying something about vaping. This was my office previous to the role I'm in currently. And I was like, I just don't know. If you're going to be vaping, why don't you have some self-respect? And at least two people in the office turned around and went, I vape. And I was like, I stand by what I said. (laughs) (laughs) So like Basil says, I object to you looking like a yob. I do not love vaping because it's one of those things that's like, it's probably going to be really terrible for you in the end. And also, it's really easy for kids to get vapes and it's really addictive. So I'm very wary of that just in general. Like as a parent, I'm like, no, keep it away. Um, (laughs) But I guess she doesn't want to have open flames around him so I can kind of give her a slight pass. But yeah, she probably looks like an idiot. I'm just speaking from a purely secondhand consumption aspect. I would much rather be around people that smoke than people who vape. And also, I go to a lot of shows. People vape indoors all the time. People don't think about it. There's a lot more vaping going on than you would ever have seen people smoking at shows. Like, you used to get one or two people who might smoke inside. Mm. Like, would risk it. But it was very rare. Whereas almost everyone vapes inside and it is horrible so that is my objection you shouldn't be allowed to vape inside if you can't smoke inside you shouldn't be allowed to vape well you're inside. not you're not allowed oh, and they you're still not allowed. do it yeah go to it like when i went to like you go to a show you sit out in the rafters whatever you can just see all the vape clouds going up like people are way more willing to do a quick vape than they are to like smoke even in areas that they're not allowed to my friends who like vape in bed who would never smoke in bed things like that it's just horrible Anywho, sorry if you vape. (laughs) (laughs) But also not sorry. I had this friend, Shadra. She she used to get in her car. She worked morning shifts at a cafe, so she would get in her car very early in the morning and roll all the windows down, no matter how cold and rainy it was, and have a cigarette on her way to work before she had even eaten, because it was like her favorite thing. And I always remember that as like, this was one of her favorite things that she ever did. Like, it was her little time for herself. And I was like, well, I can understand that. But like, vaping, I just don't. It just feels like nicotine delivery system and that there are patches for that and they're less obnoxious to other people right yeah i guess it's just what how why why are you doing the thing how are you doing the thing this is the way we need to interrogate everything we do in life Mm. right are you doing it because you genuinely enjoy it in which case fine are you doing it without even thinking because in that sense you're probably entering into dicey territory yeah 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 absolutely be mindful anywho all right now that we've yelled at the kids on the lawn Sorry, children, but not sorry. <laughs> it's okay, we're allowed to have Just a don't vape near me, okay? <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to. As always, it's how it affects me. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> um, do we think that Simon's therapist just gave him really good advice? I think this is just really good advice that mm. he got on page 60, which was like, don't think about the fact that you don't have magic and that you killed your mentor. Just think about the next few hours. Are you going to have lunch? Are you going to see your friends? Will you take a walk? 
And he goes on to say, there were days I broke it up into minutes and days that I could only live second at one second at a time. I think this is such great advice. I have given this advice to friends of mine who are struggling with depression for the first time in their lives. Yep. And I'd be like, all you have to do is think about the next five minutes. Like, what are you going to do? You're getting up now. Now you're going to have a shower. Now you're yep. going to have a piece of toast. Just don't think about big picture. Just think about one foot in front of the other. That's all you need to do. Yep. And Just once you've going. mastered that, you can start doing the might as well. Well, I'm up, so I might as well do another thing mm. but like that's you just have to start like literally baby steps yeah great advice this is how i get anything done when i am in a like i don't know what to call it but when my adhd is really digging in and my executive function just bottoms out i just have to go right back to like what am i gonna do in this next minute <laughs> like am i comfortable no am i okay with myself no okay then i have to change something what's one thing i can change just have to keep mm. getting a little bit better inch by inch it's never going to be yeah. better right away and doing a big thing is going to take more energy than doing one small thing so start small and yeah his therapist is great can um can baz maybe call this person because baz also needs some good advice they should just all go to therapy penny everyone we love, off you go we love therapy therapy's great here for it truly um well i think that was all my expectation and my grief did you have anything else I think that was it for me too. I did have some tangential. Oh yes, so do so, I. Go ahead, go ahead. I love the level of security in that exchange when Baz is like texting on his phone and Simon says to him, you know, who are you texting? And Baz has the quip that's just like my other boyfriend, the one who texts back. I think that really <laughs> shows the development of their relationship. That shows that they're healing in a way that he can make that joke. Because they've yeah. had conversations now. And, like, Simon still tries to grab the phone, but he's like, I'm texting buns. Like, <laughs> so great. When would I have time for another boyfriend? I know. And I love so that great. because he doesn't actually need to text Simon because they're together all the time now, which is great. <laughs> but he's still mad, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, sometimes I'll notice that it's been, like, a week since I texted my husband. And then I'm like, oh, wait, it's Christmas. We've seen each other. For like a week straight i don't have to be like why haven't i texted you because like, you're, you're right here next to me we're both sitting there showing each other memes by just holding our phone up <laughs> like it's it's okay yeah but i like that they're together enough that they don't have to worry about that there is um, one thing here that i've always thought was kind of problematic mm. and that is the way that Simon is very rough with Baz to the point that I think veers into abusiveness. So he says on page 275, like, I'm holding Baz now tight enough to bruise. I'm biting him hard enough to break. It's only because it's only okay because he isn't human. He isn't and I am. Yeah. And I'm like, is it okay, Simon? I don't think it's okay. Just because you can't hurt him, just because you can't wound him doesn't mean that behaving in this way is okay this is true and i love that you brought this up because we are going to see baz check this behavior and actually set a boundary i think he's choosing not to now because simon is like kind of super fragile and he really can't be hurt by it but he's later gonna say like mm. i want you to be careful with me and simon's gonna go oh mm. this is a job this is a mission i can do a mission and it's gonna work like yeah. they haven't gotten there yet but it's going to work. So I love that you brought this up because I do agree that Simon hasn't really clued into what Baz needs yet. But he's going to get yeah. that soon. Yeah, it's just... It makes me uncomfortable to think that you would put your own needs and safety to the side because your partner 
has a greater need for something at that moment. Like, yes, Baz can't get hurt, but if Baz wasn't a vampire and if he could get hurt, if someone behaved this way in a relationship, it wouldn't be okay. It wouldn't right, be okay right, to right. hurt someone just because you could. And I, there are a couple of moments, even in the previous book, where Simon does things like this, where he is too hard and he is too rough and he catches himself saying it's because he's a vampire, it's okay. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's that's a legitimate excuse to behave that you're way. You're absolutely right. So you're, you're right that he does... They, get, they talk about it and they, they get some boundary gets set later on. But it's just something that I've always thought was like, mm. you can see how that kind of behavior could get out of control really quickly if you didn't have a supportive partner who can help you learn. If yeah. you weren't, yeah, yeah. like if Simon grew up without this, what kind of partner would he be down the road, right? Absolutely. And I think there's an interesting, I, I'm thinking of the night on the rooftop where he finally confronts Agatha and they break up. And he uses magic to compel her to stay. And then he's, like, horrified immediately at what he's done. And he, like, lets her mm. go right away. Like, he clues into it as soon as he's aware of it. But And he doesn't repeat. He tends not to repeat the same mistake again. So I think it is a lot about being taught. Like, he just hasn't been taught these things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. I have a friend who she works a lot with consent and, you know, how to behave in a relationship she works particularly with sports stars she goes around to sporting teams across the country and teaches them about how to be respectful to women because often these are 16 year old boys who get put into high pressure sporting situations they it's not real life when you live a life like that when you are a you know first grade sports star you're traveling the world you've got a lot of money you don't know how to be a functional adult so she basically goes around and teaches them and you think that this is just normal but this is why you see a lot of problematic problematic behavior in young men because they they have all the power and they don't get taught to check it. And women are afraid to check them in this. And when you're in that situation, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's great that there's an awareness of that and that there's an awareness that it is a learned behavior and you have to teach people to be respectful. Yeah. I love that. We'll have to um, circle back to that when we get to that point in the book. Cause I would love to um, see how you feel about whether or not Simon is learning well, by the time we get there, I'll have to keep my eye out for that. too. Yeah. Definitely. It's really important to like try to clue in. But I honestly think sometimes, especially with, because I live in like house neurodivergent, it's really hard to teach this if you're not already good at it. Like I have one kid who's an empathy sponge and I have another kid who's just like the shrug emoji. So I have to balance like the one (laughs) is like too empathetic and always like feeling so much. And the other one is just like, do, 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 do. Nah, I want this, so I'm going to do it. Like, even if it hurts someone, like, it's really hard because, like, it's not malicious, but also then the other one's crying because I'm upset. Like, oh, it's a whole thing. So I can see mm. Simon is just not, like, cluing into that yet. I have a little bit more grace for him because I feel like he's on Team Neurospicy. Yeah, he's also not had anyone to teach him. So it's just about having the right people around you. So, exactly. Yeah. He's getting there. His support system is growing. He's staying. He's being present for it. I'm very happy about that. Um, I had a few tangential. I love that when Simon and Baz are on the train and he's being a little bit, a little bit physical with Baz, like a little cuddly. He says, page 261, there's at least one guy giving us a dirty look and I kind of hope he speaks up because I would dearly love to punch someone right now. That's a decision I could wrap my braid around. Oh, same <laughs> buddy. I have had that kind of week. <laughs> this is why I have run like 25 kilometers this week. I'm not a puncher, but similar vibes. Um, and I also love that chef just loves being in England. Like, yeah, he loves the sandwiches. He loves scones. He loves jams. He wants everybody to know how good it is. He doesn't think English people realize it. This is how I feel about Australian coffee, by the way. 
I think Baz is very funny in this section. Like, mm. he says on page 262, when Simon wants to know if Fiona's home, and he says, I don't hear Joe Strummer, so probably not. And he, Simon's like, is that her boyfriend? And Baz says she wishes. Like, I get it, Fiona. <laughs> I also wish Joe Strummer was my boyfriend. But it's so funny. And then, you know, he's got least salty because no one offered him a leaflet. And then he goes, no one ever wants me to join their religion either. <laughs> Or when Simon won't invite him into the, the compound and he's like, this is a good game, I say flatly. Can we play this for the rest of our lives? Like, it's just so bitter. I love that he's, he isn't able to go into places without a welcome mat. I love that. Ship has that observation, page 295. We get into a cab, which I predict she won't pay for. Penelope plays fast and loose with goods and services. She's like, <laughs> never paying for anything. No, she's like a one-person economic depression but i love her <laughs> way to be anti-capitalist penny um can we talk about how uh, on page 304 simon says how could you be insecure baz you're the most arrogant person i've ever met and he goes they run on different tracks <laughs> i was like oh that's what that is <laughs> i worked with a guy who we would often marvel about the fact that he was both the most arrogant man i've ever met but also just deeply insecure like just so constantly looking for validation and we'd be like how is this possible how can you be like this but also be this needy mm-hmm. don't understand confidence and arrogance are different and i love seeing baz grow in confidence and the way that i'm seeing him grow in confidence is through his vulnerability and it's just beautiful mm. i think that's all i had for tangential yeah me too did you have an in-depth for us i do so i'm going to talk about the bits on page 276 right after they've had this sort of cuddle and Simon was too rough and then he had a meltdown again so on page 276 he said I'm sorry Baz I'm never going to get this right Baz says we've only just started trying and then Simon says now is when I'd leave normally now is when I can't leave I need to ride this out I need to keep riding this out so like I Mm. said there's some kissing and then Simon has another little meltdown and I think it's I mean, this is something that's happened before, but Simon has been interrogating what a relationship is throughout this entire section. So, like, as I said, he repeatedly asks, is this what people do when they're in love? Is it just talking and touching? So he's trying to sort out what to expect from the relationship he's committed himself to. But he's really struggling with the way he loses himself in the physical side of the relationship. And there's a real sense of grief that he can't meet the expectations he has for what a relationship looks like. I think he's really mortified that he can't perform a relationship correctly. So there's definitely something linking back to this idea of his brokenness, his worthlessness, and he just carries that around all Mm. the time. So he's really grieving that he can't perform to the expectations. And it's not even Baz's expectations. They're the ones he set himself. But I kept thinking about this discomfort, right? So it reminds me Mm. of my first talk therapist, Nisha, who had this amazing piece of advice for me. She told me to surf the discomfort. So... Like Simon, when something is bad, I desperately want to climb out of my skin. When things feel terrible in my mind, I don't want to be anywhere near it. I want to do anything I can. I want to like start building a thing or like clean something or create an activity or stir up a fight or anything just to not feel uncomfortable. Um, But she just said like, take the time, feel the feeling, sit in the discomfort, just surf it like it's a wave. 
And I really see that this is what Simon is doing in this section. And I love that we get to see him focusing on why he has to sit in this discomfort because he is committed to trying and he doesn't realize it, but he's actually set his own expectations and he's going to, he's going to do what he thinks he's, he's going to do what he set out to do. So I'm really proud of him for that. Um, so going forward, I think we need to remember that no one is writing the rules of relationships for us. We consult with the people we're in relationship with and we write them together. We don't have to conform mm -hmm. to specific roles or ideals. So like what Simon and Baz do, they're talking about it. They're defining what is and what isn't. It's actually the biggest part of working together in a relationship and sitting through that discomfort is a part of growing. Good to remember for sure. Hmm. So how about you? What's your end up? So mine actually dovetails quite nicely with that. I've got page 302. So Baz is staying over for the first time and they're both being kind of insecure about it. And I think Simon is really trying to surf the discomfort mm. in this moment, right? He's really sitting with that. Yeah, so the yeah. quote is, it's always easier to make a decision when your back's against the wall and there's a knife to your throat. No time to think, just do. Grab the thing you need, steal the kiss. I'd live like that all the time if I could. I'd make my decisions jumping out second story windows. I think this um, appeal, I think this links to grief because it's a grief for the past, like how easy it was before. And also maybe for Simon, for the person he used to be, like he was the hero, he was the one leaping into danger and not thinking. And I think there's expectation there as well because he's still figuring out what is expected of him in his relationship, as you said, and like what he can expect from Baz, how Baz is going to behave and what is okay there, but also what he can expect from himself and what he is allowed to want even, I think, because he's never really thought about that, yeah. never really thought about what it means to him as a person, as an individual to be in a relationship. Um... I really love this quote because I too find it easier to make decisions in the heat of the moment. Mm. I always say that I'm at my best under pressure. I think it's easier because it lowers expectations in a way. You have to be okay with making choices based on the information you have, which often is not a lot of information. When the pressure is on, you can't wait to be perfect. And I think when you're a perfectionist like I am, that is a level of freedom I don't get to experience in everyday life. Like being yeah. put in a high pressure situation is just something that really frees me up to listen to my gut and make decisions mm -hmm. based on what feels right. What I've always found fascinating is how much more time I feel like I have in a crisis. I can get so much more done in five minutes when things are going really badly than I can in a normal five minutes. Yep. It's like everything slows down and I have this clarity that just lets me get on with things. It makes me think of action films. So when I was coming back from Europe, I watched all of the Mission Impossibles because they were showing on the plane. And you always have that moment where the bomb timer is going off or there's like a timer to a terrible thing happening and they do all these things. Like they're running across yeah. things. They're like holding their breath and you always sit there going, you're doing so much in a second. Can you really do this much in a second? Mm. And I think when you are in a crisis and you are behaving in a way where you only have two minutes to get something done before a disaster, you do, in a way, it does feel a lot longer. So now I'm like, hmm, maybe if I apply my own context to this, them doing all this stuff in a minute makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. I think going forward, what I want for us all to not is to not need a crisis to trust our instincts, like to feel that mm -hmm. we can follow our gut and allow ourselves that grace to make a decision to not feel like we need it to be perfect or to not feel like we need to have all the information to just be like, this is what feels right to me and I'm going to trust myself. You don't need a crisis. You don't need to have to be at breaking point to do that. We can do that every day. Yeah. It's just a practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you feel like you do need a crisis to make decisions, just set a timer. Honestly, it works so well. <laughs> I will sometimes just walk into my kitchen and be like, right, I have 10 minutes. Or if I'm baking cookies, because, you know, you have like a set amount that they're in the oven. Like, what can I get done in 10 minutes? 
what can I do while the cookies are in the oven? Can I get the whole kitchen clean? I set timers a lot because it does the same thing. It makes that like artificial pressure. But I feel like it's real because there is something I really have to do at the end of it. Or there's a timer that dings. That doesn't work for me, but I'm glad it works for you. <laughs> one of my kids loves it and the other one hates it. So it's, it's, your mileage may vary 100%. But I find sometimes if I'm racing against a clock, I get a lot more done. Like, oh, I've only got 10 minutes. What can I get done at this time? Yeah, right. That is good. Artificial pressure. Yeah, it's better than the real thing, right? Sometimes we need a little bit of a, a crisis to get going. But it can be a low stakes one for sure. We're not all Tom Cruise, so that's okay. <laughs> thank goodness Uh, who would you like to spotlight this week okay so very weirdly i'm going to spotlight martin bunce this week professor bunce like he's got his own stuff going on as we know he is running a whole thing on the background here that is taking up all this time he's going to cult meetings penny doesn't even care she's not asking how her dad is she's not wondering why he is like skunking around near the british museum she's just not asking questions and now she's given him another thing that he has to hide from his wife. He's already sneaking around with these meetings and like not communicating with Matali. And he says to her, you know, it would be great if I could talk to your mother about this. And she's like, no. <laughs> so now he has this other secret. He still helps his daughter, though. He's still yeah. really kind to Shep, actually. Like, he's not as dismissive as Matali was. So I don't know. I like I wanted to give him a, like a little spotlight and a little shout out because I feel like we have to remember that parents are just human beings. Like they have got their own stuff going on. They're not just there to parent you. So, you know, maybe ask them how they are every now and then. Oh, I love that. I love it that I love that she's not going to him like, "Dad." She's like, "Hey, a colleague that I know who's really brilliant." Like that's one of my favorite things. She's like, "I will <laughs> consult this colleague I know. He happens to be my dad." <laughs> who would you like to spotlight i'm gonna spotlight simon this time i just felt for him so much he's really trying and i see that he's really trying i definitely relate to that difficulty sitting in that discomfort like trying to get through the impulse to just punch someone or burn something down because you need to have something happening Mm. but i'm really proud of him so yeah shout out to everybody out there who's going through it in a new way yeah um do you have any homework for our readers this week yeah, so as I said, went to see Oppenheimer this week. I actually thought it was very good. So, Ooh. I mean, incredibly depressing, which I don't know, mm. you know, it's about the development of the atomic bomb. So did we expect anything else? But there was a moment of absolute deathly silence at the end of the film where all of us just sort of sat there and contemplated our existence. Oh so that's the vibe. If you're not looking for that, then I also saw Barbie a few weeks ago and that was a much more enjoyable time. Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Gosling, Finally putting Mm. that Disney training to use. Like, yeah, no, 10 out of 10 would recommend both of those. Um, I'm also reading a book at the moment called Where Are Your Boys Tonight by Chris Payne, which is an oral history of the emo scene circa 1999 to 2008. It's partly as research for the novel I'm writing, but mostly it's because I lived and breathed the scene and it's unintentionally hilarious. Like, I don't think this (laughs) book is meant to be funny, but I find it very funny. There's this ongoing narrative of Jeff Rickley from Thursday being played songs by his friends and him going, I love you, but this is terrible. You are all terrible. And then it's like, My Chemical Romance and For That Boy. <laughs> and it just cracks me up. And every other chapter is like, okay, so there was some drama going on with Taking Back Sunday. Like the whole thing is just so funny. So yeah, I recommend that if you were into the scene at the time, because it's good value. Amazing. I was only ever very tangentially into it. And I was all about just listening to the music and I never went to gigs, but um, it's, 
like little Banquo's ghosts for me every time a band comes up that like you really loved or you're talking about and I'm like I remember them and then I'll listen to a few songs and be like whoa I'm 18 again (laughs) (laughs) very interesting it does have that transformative power definitely it really does um, how about you? Did you have homework? Yeah, so I finished the audiobook of The Tenet of Wildfell Hall, and I feel like I could do a whole podcast on just that book because I, I can see why people consider it the first feminist novel. It was not enjoyable because it was hard, <laughs> but it was like it was so good. It was so well put together, and it has that like definite, like you can tell the Brontes are very close and that they work on each other's stuff and that they speak and think a lot like very similarly I love that you get those like shades of Bronte family coming through but this this book is it's hard but it is a great and I highly highly recommend it I've linked to the audiobook in the show notes of the Jenny Gutter and Alex Jennings version of the audiobook which is great I thought they both did a good job and I I'm very loyal to my few audiobook um, narrators so I had to try and have a leap of faith with this one but it was so good Mm. oh hard book though Mm. Well, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that it's hard, but that you got so much from it. I think it's one of those ones that I'll probably read again in like a decade because it was, I'm mm. going to need some time. Fair enough. But it was good. And it ended nicely. Like, it it was satisfying. Oh, good. Yeah. That's what you want. Yeah. Well, all right, then next week we'll be reading chapters 47 to 55 through the theme of optimism. Mm-hmm. Something nice and light. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> I can't wait. We'll, hopefully we'll be swinging up. Up into the good of the rest of the year. <laughs> Ready yeah, for that. hopefully. Oh, thank you so much mm. for potting today, Jen. I appreciate it. Oh, good. Always lovely to see you. And I'll catch you next week. Absolutely. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to hello at marginaliapod.com, check out our Instagram, or maybe dash off a quick review. You can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our music is by Scott Buckley, and the logo artwork is by Laura Cato. You can find detailed show notes for each episode and much more at our website www.marginaliapod.com. Special thanks to all the people in our various communities whose love and care sustains us. Without your support, we would be very sad little critters. We appreciate you. And to you, our wonderful listeners, thanks again for being here. We love spending this time with you. 